As we look at Luke's foundation for a confident faith, uh, he is continuing and, he, and we'll wrap up the introduction today. We're three chapters in and he's still setting the stage. Luke is still giving us this introduction of what is happening uh, in the gospel. And uh, so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 3. The action is short, but the passage is not. So I'm going to read through it. I'm going to read through a whole bunch of names that um, many of them won't have a lot of meaning for you. A few will, uh, but we'll take a look at why this is important as we go along. So uh, if you have found Luke 3, if you haven't, it's in your New Testament. You can take a look at where I'm at in my Bible here. It's about probably four-fifths of the way through. Luke chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 21. You may follow along as I read. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Haley, also known as Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of, <coughs> the son of Eali, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matathias, See, we get re repetition just like in our families. The son of Semain, the son of Yosech, the son of Yoda, the son of Yohanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Yonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, who was the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, Again, we see the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. Now we're getting to names you might recognize from the Genesis story. The son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Roy, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Cainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. May God add his blessing to his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come together today singing songs, praying prayers, reading texts, even genealogies, because we know that you are the ultimate reality. Lord, 
since you have wired this world as you have chosen to make it work, we can't function rightly in this world without your word. And since you have seen fit to give it to us in writing, how dare we neglect it? So Lord, here in, in Luke 3, as we discover the, the identity of Christ and what that means to us, I pray that you would protect this congregation and any who might hear this message from any wayward thoughts, from any opinions from myself or any commentators that may have contributed to my thoughts today, that we would receive your word, that you would illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Father, give us a critically thinking, analytical mind to be able to look at your text of your word and to not be deceived or fooled by people who want to make it say what they want it to say. Whether by design, by deception, or by accident, Father, protect us from false teaching. We seek only to hear your voice. We welcome your Holy Spirit. We cry out from our hearts for our Father. We receive you in the Son. May you alone be glorified today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we um, look at this, you're probably thinking, other than you know, this section over here laughing at Yoda in there, because we know that that's going to happen. You're probably thinking, why in the world is he reading this really boring list of names? Because it's important. Why is it important? First and foremost, because God said, I want this in my word. Secondly, as an extension of that, Dr. Luke, as he has worked through this gospel, he said at the very beginning in chapter 1, I'm going to write this orderly account for you because I myself have wrestled with these things. I've investigated it. I've gone back. I've checked it out. I've seen the foundations. And I want you to know the certainty of the faith that you've been taught. To know for sure that the doctrines that have been passed on, that the teachings about the Christ, about the good news, about how to have a relationship with God are true and accurate and real. So he personally investigated. He went back to all the eyewitnesses that he could find. Perhaps and probably talking to Mary herself. Perhaps and probably finding every person that he could who was connected with these events. He couldn't talk to John the Baptist. John the Baptist had died long before Luke came on the scene. But he could talk to the other disciples who were there. In all likelihood, he talked to the writers of the other Gospels. He may well have talked to Mark or to Peter, from whom John Mark got his Gospel, got that story to write down. He may well have gone and talked to Matthew to find out what Matthew included and why. Matthew, what did you see? Now here we're at a place where many of the other uh, apostles hadn't encountered Christ yet. But Luke is still using this as an introduction, as a foundation. So as we, as we discover where he's going with this, bear in mind, he includes this genealogy not by accident. Not because he wanted to throw a bunch of funny names in there that you couldn't pronounce. 
Probably he didn't pronounce them that well either. He was a Gentile, apparently a Greek. These are Hebrew names. That's not his native tongue. So he's probably looking at them like, Yoda, really? <laughs> Same as we are. But he's going back through this for a reason. Here's the reason. It's our core reality for today. He wants to establish in this introduction, as he, as he clarifies who Jesus is, he wants us to know this. Only Jesus is able to reconcile God and humanity. Only Jesus is able to reconcile God and humanity. Say it with me. Only Jesus is able to reconcile God and humanity. This is important. Because everything else that comes after this chapter is rooted in this truth. What happens in chapter 4, 5, 6, you see the pattern. As we go forward, what Jesus does, what Jesus teaches, what happens in those around him, all of it hinges on who he is. It hinges on the fact that he is both God and human. Because, God, because Jesus is fully God and fully human, he's fully qualified to pay the full price for the fullness of our sin and to make us fully acceptable and fully loved by the Father, and fully immersed in the Holy Spirit. As we walk through this today, we'll, we'll just briefly take a look at, at this account of Christ's baptism. We won't go through all of the, bio, the biographies of all these guys in the genealogy. That would take a little while. But we do need to see the point. In Christ's baptism, we see some amazing things happen. In this genealogy, we see equally amazing things happen. Let's start by taking a look at, at this first account. Now notice, it, starting in verse 21, the entire account of Christ's baptism is given to us in two verses. It's shared with us in three, of, uh, in, in three of the Gospels. Matthew's is the most detailed account. Perhaps he was there. He was a, a tax collector before he was following Christ. And we see in, even here in Luke's account, in the first part of chapter 3, that tax collectors were coming to John to be baptized for repentance. So maybe he was there. We don't know. But we know this. He gives a detailed account Mark gives a short account. Luke gives a two-verse account that is fraught with powerful, meaty information that gets real practical for us by the time we get to the end. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. I was reading a commentary by J. Vernon McGee, a late radio pastor who did a great series called Walk Through the Bible. Uh, some of you may have, may have listened to that on the radio years ago on WHME or WGN. Uh, terrific series, just walking through every verse of the Bible and, and giving commentary on it. And in this, he talked about the fact that, it, how, how perfect is it of Jesus? Well, Wearsby alludes to the same thing. Jesus wanted to be baptized with the people. But being the gentleman that he is, he waits for everybody else to get done. Everybody else go first. All the people are being baptized. Jesus is there with them, not separate, not above, not, hey, I'm going to reserve my place here so I don't have to deal with the crowds. I might do that because, you know, crowds freak me out a little bit. So, you know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, 
just so you know, I'm the Messiah, so I'm going to have a special baptism over here. He comes to John, his relative, who is a sinner like the rest of us, who is not God, and he asks John to baptize him, along with everybody else, but how typical of the humble Jesus to wait for others to go first. When Jesus is baptized, we've studied already in, in Luke 3 that John's baptism is a baptism for repentance. Baptism always was always a symbol of identification. For the Greeks, it was a symbol of identification with a, a particular philosopher or philosophy. Those two always would go together, the teaching and the relationship. For the Hebrews, for the Jews, they appropriated that from the Greeks and they used that symbol to identify here, uh, to identify with becoming a Jew. So a Gentile who was not born into Israel could become a Jew by repenting, changing their mind, the, the metanoia, the new mind. I'm going to say, I'm going to turn my back on my pagan ways and I'm going to choose to follow the God of Israel and identify myself as an Israelite, as a Jew, for the rest of my days. God had made provisions for this in the Old Testament. Now they appropriated this symbol. It didn't change anything. They didn't become a Jew by being baptized, but they used this symbol to publicly confess or declare that I am now identified with the Jewish people rather than with the person I was born as, the, the race or culture. The Bible doesn't speak of race. That's a non-issue. But uh, the culture that I was in. I renounce my foreign gods. I renounce my ways. And I choose the way that God has given to Israel. John does an unusual thing. He's not baptizing Gentile converts. He's baptizing Jews who recognize that they weren't living for God and are now turning from sin to God. From my way, if you'll pardon the pun, to Yahweh. I'm going to go from... Yeah, it's bad, isn't it? It's terrible. But, but that's what they're doing. I'm going to go from my way to God's way. That's the identification with baptism. Now Jesus comes, and John is saying, here's a baptism of repentance. He had just made that clear by saying, everybody, you're coming to get baptized because the crowds are coming. What's wrong with you snakes? If you're serious about this, then change the way you think and change where your feet are going. Stop saying you're repenting. Stop wanting to identify with the trending thing and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you really want to turn from your way to God's way, don't talk about it, be about it. It doesn't come from your lips. It comes from your feet and your hands. But now Jesus comes. This presents a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? It kind of catches John off guard. In Matthew's account, Matthew's like, Whoa, um, uh, what? <laughs> really? I should be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus had angels show up to tell his mom, had an angel show up to tell his mom that she was going to have him, conceived by the Holy Spirit. When he was born, most of us will maybe send out birth announcements, post it on Facebook. He had the heavenly host show up to tell the neighborhood that he was born. 
That doesn't happen every day, amen? That didn't happen when I was born. It didn't happen when my glorious firstborn son came into the world. It didn't happen when any of my children were born, including my son Ethan, whose birthday is today. He's probably not going to hear this, but happy birthday, Ethan. So, um, Jesus is unique. Now, we're going to see over and over again that, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is without sin. So why would he be coming to be baptized when John is baptizing for repentance? Mark this down. Jesus was fully identified with those who belong to God. Jesus was fully identified with those who belong to God. When Jesus comes to be baptized, it's not because he's turning from his sin. In Matthew's account, he says, this is good that we do this now. It doesn't make sense to you because you're thinking in terms of repentance like everyone else. And yeah, that's not it. But it's good that we do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus chooses to use this identification symbol to identify with those who are now choosing to live for God alone. That's what their repentance does. They go from living my way and having God on the shelf, having God on my bumper sticker or my t-shirt, having you know, God in my Sunday morning, to having God in my 24-7. I live for God alone from here on out. Jesus is identifying with that. His baptism is not just a, an identification with that, but an identification with those who are being baptized. He goes among the people as the people are being baptized to publicly connect with that, if I can say, movement. I'm a little uncomfortable with that word, but I couldn't come up with a better one. But as this, as this movement of John's baptism is happening, and the people are turning from sinful ways to God's way, to identify with Him, Jesus does it with them. He comes among the people. This is huge for Luke, by the way. We'll see throughout the Gospel, Luke is keenly aware. He's perhaps the most conscious of all the Gospel writers of Christ's mission to the outsider, to the outcast. It's a beautiful picture when we look at it. Because Luke is the only Gentile writer of Scripture. Everybody else is from Israel, is, is a Jew, or pre-Jew uh, Hebrew. So Luke alone is coming from the outside. He's from among the Goyim, the Gentiles, the nations, rejected by, the, by Israel, and rejected by God because of sinful ways and, and pagan ways, but God has a whole other picture. You know that the Bible never once talks about race? Because we're all the same. We all have a common ancestor. So all of the differences that we have between us, <laughs> it's irrelevant. The closest thing it comes to talking about is the difference between the Jews and the nations, between the, the Greeks and the Romans, the Greeks and the Jews. That's it. It's a cultural difference. We get hung up on stupid stuff, don't we? Somebody say amen. We get hung up on stupid stuff, don't we? Because this is really flesh-oriented. We see divisions among us based on our eyes. Because 
You don't look like me. You don't sound like me. You didn't come from my background. You didn't sin like me. You all sin. All y'all sin. But you didn't sin like me. <laughs> Mine must be better. Your sin must be worse. That's not at all what the Bible portrays. Luke sees this in the ministry of Christ, and it screams at him. And as we read this gospel, it should jump off the page to us that Luke is pointing out that Jesus is always among the people, reaching out to those nobody else wants, those who are lepers, contagious disease, outcasts from society, the crooked criminals, the crooked politicians, the, the thieves and the hookers and the addicts and the, the, the perverts and all of the labels that we might put on people, that's who Jesus spends his time with. He, in this baptism, is fully identified with those who belong to God. Those who have turned from their way to his way. And he's right there with them. It doesn't matter what their background is. More than that, as he identifies with the people, Jesus is identifying with the work that he will do. We, have, we saw in Luke 2 that because of who he was as the Messiah, Jesus was destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. He was the consolation of Israel, the Messiah come, the rescuer, the salvation. But here, he identifies in this act with what we would recognize later in Christian baptism. His death and burial as he goes under the water and his resurrection as he comes up. This isn't explicit, but it's very difficult to think that, that this was not in the mind of God. Mark this. His baptism is a picture of what he gives his baptism is a picture of what he gives. As Jesus goes and identifies with us in baptism, he is identifying with what we will become in him. He offers his life. He offers the path, the means of salvation. And we talked about this previously. It's one thing to repent, to recognize that my way is a bad way, and I'm going to change my direction, but I still got to choose the right way, or I just choose another bad direction. If I turn from riotous living to a cleaned up version of some pagan religion or atheism, but I realize that, you know what, if I quit you know, drinking and carousing and, and doing all these bad things, I'd be a lot healthier and a lot happier. That's a repentance, but it's not a repentance unto salvation, unto the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, in his identification here, is giving us the path and he will spend the rest of his earthly ministry making this clear, being specific about it. His baptism is a picture of what he gives. Note this, our baptism is a picture of what we receive. Our baptism is a picture of what we receive. Christian baptism doesn't come up until later. This becomes adopted later on. John's baptism is still an Old Testament baptism. Turning from my from my ruling my own life to letting God's word rule my life. Jesus is sort of the bridge between these two rituals. He is the reality that it's intended to reflect. And so as Jesus identifies with the people and identifies with what he will give to us at the cross, 
Christian baptism, as Paul explains it and describes it, is identifying us with his death on the cross and with his resurrection. We are buried with him in baptism unto death, and we are raised to a new life in Christ. His baptism is a picture of what he gives. Our baptism is a picture of what we receive. Important for us to recognize that he was fully identified with those who belong to God. Now, notice, he's not identified with all of the world. This is going to become an important thing as we go along. Jesus is available to all. He doesn't isolate himself from anyone. But he's only identified with those who turn from their own way to his way. He'll say, we'll see this over and over throughout the gospel, Jesus is going to say hard things like, if you don't hate your family by comparison to your love for me, you're not worthy of me. If you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. There is no easy path. There's no comfortable religion. There's no cheap grace. You're all in or you're not in. Jesus does not indiscriminately throw grace around. He didn't die on the cross so everybody can just do whatever they want and go to heaven. That's not it. He died on the cross so that what you want changes. So that now you can delight in Him. You can delight in God the Father because you're no longer an enemy, an outsider, but you are His child. We're going to talk about that as we go. Jesus was fully identified with those who belong to God. Second, we see Jesus was fully God. Jesus was and is fully God. I'm using the past tense to keep the formula and to match the passage. Understand he is still exactly what he always has been. Jesus was fully God. We see this uh, in this baptism as he is declared to be the Son of God. Notice this, though. Really important teaching. All three persons of the Trinity are manifest together. All three persons of the Trinity are manifest together. It's really difficult for the non-Trinitarians to, to be able to uh, deal with this passage. It's very difficult for some of the ancient heresies, modalism and partialism, and, oh man, I just had a Lutheran satire moment. I, it's a funny YouTube channel. It, yeah, I don't agree with all of it, but man, is it funny. Anyway, so uh, as we're, before I got distracted by my wife's smile and making me think of YouTube. Um, it's really crucial for us to recognize that all three persons of the Trinity are manifest together. Check it out now. As we see this, uh, when all the people were, were baptized, verse 21, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, just a little side note, when we pray, heaven opens. What, as, as he was praying, heaven was opened. And somebody descended on him. Who was it? The Holy Spirit descended on him. Note this, in bodily form, I would underline that if it were me, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We see here in this one scene, all at the same time, simultaneously, together, the father speaking from heaven. The son, you are my son whom I love. The son being baptized. 
and we see the presence in an unusual situation, we see a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. All three together. So it can't be that it's how God appears in different forms at different times. That's modalism. That's a, a heresy that was rejected by the early church. We uh, have creeds that were, um, that were put together to be able to answer such heresies. Anytime you see the church's creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, you see those ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, they were designed as summaries of what the gospel says to clarify teaching as people began to veer off. The Bible says this, and I'm going to kind of twist it and manipulate it and shape it like it's Play-Doh, and I end up over here. And the creeds were designed as the, the authoritative teachers within the church got together, hashed it out, and said, okay, here are the problems that we come up with. Here are the things that, that are uh, easy to misinterpret. What is our universal understanding of this? Much prayer and much debate went into wrestling with this. Why did they have to do that? Uh, without taking too much time in church history, they had to do this because, as you know, any cultist can twist the Bible and make it say what they want to say. Some of you will remember David Koresh down in Waco. He knew the Bible inside and out. He knew it better than I know it. He didn't understand it as God intended it. And it was very often that cultists will use the King James Version. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with the King James Version. However, it's a language we don't speak today. So if I'm going to twist the meaning of Scripture, very easy for me to do that by taking a language that you don't really understand anyway. You know, if I'm going to take Shakespeare and you don't really read Shakespeare, I can make it say a lot of things because you don't really know what it's talking about. When I go back to Elizabethan English, I go to, the, to King James, some of you will really understand it. It's a good translation. Not quite as good as some of the other ones because we found better texts. So we were able to get a better handle on it. We have a better understanding of the original languages. But if I want to twist it, man, I can twist it if you don't understand it. This happened during the Dark Ages. The priests were the only ones who had access to the Word. The common man couldn't read the Bible. It was written in Latin. If they could read, they probably couldn't read Latin. So the priests got to tell them, here's what it says. And they didn't get to say, well, wait a minute, I'm reading it. It doesn't look like it says that. No, no, no. It says so because I said so. Because the church said so. Praise God that he has given us the Bible in our own hands to be able to look at it, to read it. We have more access to the truth of Scripture than at any other point since Scripture was written. We can see it in multiple renderings. We can see the original language renderings. We can compare and contrast and wrestle with it. I'm starting to get off track here, so let me come back. I get a little fired up about the Word of God, amen? I don't mind getting up fired up about the Word of God. All three persons of the Trinity are manifest together. Important for us to see this. It's one of the few times that that happens. Next, the Father loves the Son because of identity, not performance. The Father loves the Son because of identity, not performance. If I were you, I would work really hard to drive this truth into my heart and mind. Because if you don't, if you don't get this, then when we get to the end here and we begin to apply it, you are going to miss out on the power this has in your life. 
Notice, Jesus is at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. In the temple, when what he would do was declared through prophecy, Jesus hadn't done anything but giggle and coo and fill a diaper. That was all that he had done. And yet the truth was still true about him. Who he was would determine what he would do. Here, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has done lots of things in those 30 years, but he hasn't done the work that he came to do. He hasn't done the work of ministry. And yet, before he accomplishes the work to please the Father, the Father says, you're my son. You are my son, whom I love. I delight in my son because you're my son. If you're a parent, maybe you can understand that better than others. If you're a child, I pray, all of us are children, right? I pray that you got to know this from your parents, that you had parents who could show you that you are loved deeply, truly loved, simply because of who you are, not because you lived up to some standard. Jesus, before he ever took part in his ministry, was loved by God the Father simply because he was the Son. Man, we need to get this. The Father loves the Son because of identity, not performance. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a concept or force. Important stuff for us to get. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a concept or force. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. We get this, I'll be honest, the Holy Spirit's hard for us to grasp because he's a spirit, right? So when we think of spirits, you know, people talk about the Holy Ghost. We think of ghosts like Ghostbusters, kind of, you know, a poltergeist kind of thing. It's hard for us to, to get our minds wrapped around it sometimes. But here in this passage, as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, notice he does so in bodily form, in a physical, visible manifestation. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. Notice it's like a dove. If your rendering says as a dove, it's as in the sense of like. It's not, it's not saying the Holy Spirit is a dove. A bird didn't land on Jesus' head. That would be really awkward. But the Holy Spirit descends on him, alights on him, falls on him. And as he does so, it has the appearance, seems like a dove. You might remember in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fills the place and, and the, the people are, are filled with the Holy Spirit and it comes down upon them. It appears as if it were tongues of fire. It doesn't say it was fire, but in this visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that was the best description you get. And here we have a similar description. The Father loves the Son because of identity, not performance. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a concept or force. And as we see this all come together, this baptism gives us the clear picture, reiterating what was established in Luke 1 and Luke 2, that Jesus is himself God. Not partly God, but fully God. Very God of very God, as the theologians would say. Light of light, God of God. Not a watered-down version, not half God, half man, but fully God and fully man. That's our last point here. Jesus 
was fully human. Jesus was fully human. That's why Luke includes this genealogy for us. In Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you like. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew records for us a, a truncated, which was a typical way of doing genealogies uh, in the Hebrew tradition, a truncated version of uh, the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. He's showing something specific. Mark this down. Matthew traces Jesus' legal line through Joseph. Matthew traces Jesus' legal line through Joseph. It's been said that it, this was his legal title as David's son, David's descendant, who would reign on the throne. Matthew's job, as he is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, is he wants to show the legal ties that Jesus has a legal claim through his legal father to the legal throne of David. He is the right descendant, and he has claim to it. But Luke does something different. Notice this. Luke, on the other hand, traces Jesus' bloodline through Mary. Luke traces Jesus' bloodline through Mary. <clears throat> Joseph is not Haley's or Eli's son. It's his son-in-law. Just a little side note. You may want to jot this down. Maybe you don't care. The word translated son, the, where we see son of, son of, son of, that's not actually in the better texts uh, as we look at the original manuscripts. The, the earlier the text, we don't see that word as it's used here. What we have is a concept of a connection as a, uh, as a son. But in Matthews, he's, show, he's using the term begat uh, to go back to that King James. I told you it's a good translation. So he's saying there's actually a siring taking place among these people in that line from Abraham up until we get to Jesus, whose foster father, Joseph, is his legal claim to the throne. But here in Mary's line, we make that same jump from, because it's reckoned, the, uh, the genealogies were traditionally reckoned through the man, so we jump from Joseph to his father-in-law, Eli. And as this goes back, she, uh, Mary's line gets traced all the way back to Adam. Notice it says in your translation, Adam is the son of God. He's not. That's why we need to make sure that we notice that this is not actually, it's a concept. It's not something that's in the original translation. He's not the son of God. He's the creation of God. Big difference. Also, one of the things that was debated in the creeds in the early church, because many would say that Jesus was created of the Father, not begotten of the Father. He was another creation equivalent, most would say, to Michael the archangel or to Lucifer. But he was the good, the good angel, right? He was a son of God, or he was the created son of God. That's not the case. And so it's universally affirmed within Orthodox Christianity that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. The only one who has God as his literal father. Adam here was created by God. And so Luke is giving us this connection 
going all the way back, all the way back, all the way back, to say that Jesus, through Mary, was fully human. This matters. Because Adam carried sin through the race. The only race mentioned in the Bible is humanity, the human race. We're all descendants of Adam and more closely related as all of us descendants of Noah. No separation. And sin has followed that line all the way from Adam down. As our federal head, by nature and choice, we inherit his sin. You know what's interesting? God wipes out the world with the flood in Genesis 6. Saves Noah and his family, the only righteous people. He saves them through the ark. But you know, sin followed them through the ark. Immediately afterwards, sin begins to come up again. Because it was in the ark, in Noah and his wife and their children. Sin's in us. Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, finishes that, that work for us. Turn to the book of Romans, if you would. If you're still in Luke, I'm just going to turn uh, a few pages, get past the book of John, past Roman, uh, right after the book of John, you find Romans. Boy, those letters get really small. And find Romans chapter 5. Man, I want to read this whole book. Every time we open to Romans, I just want to keep going. Thank you. Romans chapter 5. Start with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... Now, we've got a therefore. That means we've got to back up and see the context, right? Anytime you see a therefore... Figure out what the therefore is about. Let's back up to the next paragraph. Start with verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, the blood of Christ, that is, how much more then shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies because of our sin, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, whom He loved, if you will recall from our passage today, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? In other words, if God was willing to sacrifice His only begotten Son, whom He loved, with whom He was well pleased, whom He delighted in, for you, while you were a wretch, steeped in sin and separated from Him, His enemy, then how can you possibly think, now that you are in Him, adopted as His own child, that He, will, that he would not give you every good thing because of Christ? Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the heart of the gospel. Through Christ, we who have received Him, who have believed on His name, have received reconciliation. Then verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin and in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was even given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Who was a pattern of the one to come. I would mark that in my Bible. 
But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man's sin, by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation for everybody. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification for those who are in Christ. For if, verse 17, by the trespass, the breaking of the law by one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. In other words, sin was there before there was a law, God introduced the law so that we could rightly see what is right and wrong and we could be clear on when we break the law so it would give us a clearer picture of just how deep the rabbit hole goes so that the trespass, the breaking of the specific command might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam brought sin. He was the first man. Jesus, to bring life to us, needed to be for us a second Adam, the second man. We have death in Adam, but the second Adam gives us life. What does it matter? What difference does it make? Why is all this important to us? First, recognize our core reality. Only Jesus is able to reconcile God and humanity. There is no other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. Only Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our mediator, to be our redeemer, to be specifically our atoning sacrifice because he was fully God, which means then for he has his divine nature and perfection and power. Jesus is without sin. More than without sin, he is beyond creation. He could have stopped it all and chose not to. He voluntarily laid down his life. The God of power voluntarily humbled himself as we see in Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant, even death on a cross. He voluntarily did this for us. He was fully God. He was divine and perfect and without sin. But he was also fully human. He was able to represent us as one of us. He was related to us. There's a concept in the Old Testament that we don't have time to talk about today but we see it clearly in the book of Ruth. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of who the Messiah would be. The concept is called the kinsman redeemer. 
where a blood relative would have the opportunity to buy back someone who is in need. This happens in Christ. He is related to us. He is our kinsman redeemer. He's fully human. He had to be without sin or he would have had to have died for his own sin because the wages of sin is death. But he had to be fully human to walk in our shoes, to represent us, to be a part of this race. He was, before he did that, fully approved and loved by the Father. He was also because of this love, because of his perfect knowledge, his complete intimacy with the Father, he was obedient. He said, it's good for us to do this because it fulfills righteousness. He did what pleased the Father. But it wasn't that he did what pleased the Father that caused the Father to love him. Just the opposite. The Father loved him, and in their intimacy, the Son longed to please his Father. We get that so reversed. We get so performance-oriented, and we, we get worked up, even about our sin. i got to tell you, if you're in Christ, stop thinking about your sin. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb shed for you at Calvary, and you've trusted in that, John 1.12 says that by, by grace, this, I'm, I'm mixing verses together, but John 1.12 takes that grace and says, for as many as received Christ, those who believed in His name, to them He gives the right to become children of God. If you're in Christ, you have become a child of God. You have been adopted by Him fully, completely. Not that, that extra kid who, you know, oh man, that, you know, all the bad comments you might make about an extra kid that you don't care about. No, that's not it. You belong. You don't have to earn it. I love my children even when they mess up because they're my children. God loves the, the, the son. The father loves the son in the same way. It matters because if we don't get this right, we're going to misunderstand every other part of the gospel as we go through the story. Christ is qualified to be our atoning sacrifice. Therefore, our debt is paid on His cross. If he, if he were not qualified, if He were not fully God, fully man, able to do this on our behalf, then His sacrifice would have been insufficient. If He were not, then being in Him would be worthless regarding salvation. His baptism identifies Him with all those who choose to live for God alone. And as he identifies with us, we are identified with him. His baptism is a picture of our propitiation. Our baptism is a picture of our reception of that. His baptism, as we noted earlier, is a picture of what he gives, ours of what we receive. In both cases, that baptism is a reflection of a greater reality, an identification with something real. In Christ, we are accepted, approved, pleasing to the Father. Christ is obedient. Therefore, in Christ, God sees His obedience in place of ours. 
Isn't that freeing to us? All the times that I blow it, God looks at me and says, all I see is Jesus. All I see is Jesus. What difference does it make in my daily walk? If that's true, if all of these things that we've said about Christ is true, and because I've received him and believed in his name, put my trust in him, then I am his child. I'm the son of God. You're the daughter of God. Then everything that's spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of me and of you when we're in Christ. Everything that is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of all the children of God in Christ. We are accepted. We are approved in Christ. God delights in his children. Because we are accepted and loved in Christ, we can live free and focused on him. I don't have to focus on my sin anymore. I don't have to spend my time thinking, oh, why am I like this wretched man that I am? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. For Christ, all of my focus now can be on him. I can delight in the Father knowing that he delights in me as his child, which sets me free then to live, not looking back over my shoulder about how I blew it, but just live. His love for his children is not based on our performance, but on our identity in Christ. Because Christ is loved, we are loved. Because he is accepted, we are accepted. Because he is obedient, by his works, we are obedient. Because of that, God delights in us exactly as he delights in Christ. I'll close with just this thought. No matter how much we struggle and fail, no matter how much we struggle and fail, the Father loves and delights in His children. If we are in Christ, the Father says of us, you are my child whom I love and I delight in you. Let's pray together. Father you are the maker of heaven and earth almighty and you've chosen to give us your only begotten son to make us right not because we deserved it but specifically because we never could not because we try our best, but because you know we don't try our best. You don't save us after all we can do on our own, but you save us in spite of all we do on our own. Thank you for the knowledge that simply by receiving the gift you give us in your son Jesus, we are changed 
And it may take a lifetime for our behaviors to begin to line up with that rightly. But, but Lord, we're changed. Our identity has changed because you have said so. You signed the papers. And we are yours. Teach us, Lord, that the best way that we can bring you honor and glory is not to perform for you, but to delight in you as our Father even as you delight in your children. Teach us this in the deepest places. We pray in Christ's name.